Good morning, church. It's Pastor Mark on the big screen. Uh, I'm not there and I'm on video today because I had such a large reaction to me speaking last time around the women submit to your husbands that I've had to move overseas for protection. No, not really. But I am in Cambodia. I am overseas for good reasons. I'm here setting up our missions trip for next year. We're going to go again in February next year and I needed to come and set it up. You know, I hadn't been to... Cambodia since uh, early last year, and I really needed to show my face here. You know, just last Friday, I was able to meet with two separate pastors' committees, and yesterday I've done ministry training with over 60 pastors, and that's representing the whole uh, Banche Miche province. I've also met with the governor of Banche Miche, who's been so kind to us. You know, he really is the boss of this province, and without his permission, we can't do anything. It's because of his favour that we can get into schools, we can get into universities, we can go to a drug, a drug rehab and we can hold a community concert. You know, God has indeed highly favoured us. I was talking to another pastor the other day who works in Phnom Penh and he really couldn't believe the amount of favour that we've had and what we're able to do in the Banche Michi province and it's because of the favour of the governor there. So please pray for him. You know, Cambodia is a needy place, both economically and spiritually, and God has given us an open door. So consider coming on the trip next year. It's going to be in early Feb, and I promise you it will be life-changing. You know, one of the core values of Emerge Church, and one of my goals is that every single member of our church would go on at least one missions trip. So maybe next year's your turn. It's your time to go on a missions trip. You'll be glad that you did. So pray about it. You'll be really glad that you came. You know, today while you're preaching on the, while I'm preaching on the big screen, in reality, I'll actually be preaching in a small, humble church. I'll be in my bare feet because you've got to take your shoes off everywhere you go. It'll probably be a dirt or tiled floor. And I'm going to be speaking to a whole group of people who have no idea of what I'm saying. Hopefully you have a little bit of an idea of what I'm saying. But I'll be preaching through an interpreter. But God will do something because of your prayers. God will do something because God is God. It's going to be awesome. But if you come on a missions trip, it might be you who's actually preaching in that church, who's actually preaching in that dirt floor, who's with those very simple people who are hearing a message of hope, who are hearing the gospel maybe for the first time. That could be you. I recommend it. Pray about it. It should be excellent. So today we're going to continue our series on the book of 1 Peter. You know, I, I actually love doing it. I love preparing for them. And from what I hear the majority of you have been enjoying it as well. So today we're going to hit chapter four. Let's once again do a little recap and catch up anyone who may have missed some or all of the last three. So the book of 1 Peter is written by Peter the Apostle. He's writing to Christians who are living in hostile cities. Some are there because they're escaping persecution, but the majority of them are there because they've been converted by those persecuted Christians and that's where they live. It's a book written to converted Christians. It's trying to teach how to live the Christian life in a hostile place, a place where Christianity isn't going to get you rewarded, isn't going to get you ahead, and where it could possibly bring persecution and restriction. It's written to people who are going through a hard time, who are suffering because of their faith, and for whom there isn't an instant answer that makes the problem just go away. 
You know, in chapter one, Peter focuses people on the eternal, to persevere in this tough world and that we must have an eternal mindset. In chapter two, we're encouraged to put aside things like malice and deceit, slander, envy, hypocrisy, as these are the fruit of a mindset that isn't eternal, that, that is about the temporal. It only increased hostility towards us from those outside the faith when we don't have that eternal mindset. Peter shows us that that eternal mindset will see ourselves as a royal priesthood. And let me tell you, please listen to Pastor Julie's message a couple of Sunday nights ago about a royal priesthood. It was excellent. It's on our YouTube channel and I highly recommend it. It's excellent. You want to know what a royal priesthood means? You're not going to hear better than that. Also that we're a holy nation and that we are God's special people. Then instructions are given to us how to deal with injustice and how to persevere through an unfairness, which is a theme of the whole book. It tells us that we're to honour government, people of position, to work hard in our workplaces so that people wouldn't have a reason to be against us. We saw that if we endure these tough conditions, trusting Him who judges rightly and looking to Jesus as our example, then God would give us credit. So chapter 2 is essentially telling us how an eternal mindset will help us persevering and enduring in some of the tougher things of our walk with God. Chapter three talks about men and women and marriage. And uh, actually, thank you for being so gracious to me last week. Page is essentially saying throughout the whole chapter three, act properly even if things aren't good. And then Peter talks about what acting properly looks like, to be tender-hearted, to be courteous, to not do evil for evil, but rather to do good, to not revile and don't deceive. And then Peter finishes with this thought, which I think is throughout the whole book, do good whether people deserve it or not. If we live in an unrighteous world, if we live doing good, if we live making the world a better place, we are going to live a better life, an easier life. That the world may not understand us, they may be against us, but if we're doing good, what can they say? And uh, we just did that yesterday in going on our We Care Day. You know, we did something good for our community. And I want to thank everyone who went along to that. Well done. It really represents us well. So whether people love us or hate us, really in the end, they can't say anything against us because we've shown a compassion and a kindness for our community. So on to chapter four, and I'm going to pray. Father, I pray that you would help me speak your word today to communicate it was you would have it communicated that people will hear what you have to say, not what I have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter four, 1 Peter 4 verse one. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, in, in, uh, when we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness, revelers, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. 
You know, the suffering of Christ once again functions, as it does throughout this whole book, as a model and inspiration for us. Christ is our greatest role model. Even though he's completely guiltless, he still suffered. To those living in this hostile environment, Peter is saying, you may do everything right, but you're still going to go through some suffering. Let Jesus be your example. Now, remember, Peter is writing to those who weren't originally Christians, but people who had become Christians. In verse 1, Peter is not saying that once we become Christians, we cease sinning, if only. No, he's saying that because of Christ's suffering, sin has been dealt with. We are as though we have no sin. Peter goes on, you're now free from sin, so why indulge in sin? Great question. If you're free from sin, why do you, why would you want to do it? Why keep on doing all the things that you used to do, that the Gentiles do? Lewdness, lust, idolatry, drunkenness, partying. These things shouldn't attract us anymore. We should be attracted to doing the will of God. Not doing these things mystifies the world. They, they wonder why you don't. The world don't actually get it. Your work friends and your families can sometimes even feel judged because we don't join in with them with what they're doing. We don't really judge them, but we just haven't joined them. But it's not because you hate them. It's because what they like, you no longer like. You know, when I played, uh, sorry, when I got saved, I played a lot of cricket and I played a lot of eight ball, right? I'm always good at all the pub sports, right? And uh, I played a lot of eight ball and I was still playing that and I wanted to keep my friends. I wasn't judging, I'm, I'm going to church now, I'm not going to do that. No, I, I didn't judge them, but I just didn't like the things that they liked anymore. The, the things that they wanted to talk about didn't interest me. I, I didn't want to know how drunk I could get or tell some story of how stoned I got. I didn't want to talk about some filthy or vulgar thing that, that they were going on about. It wasn't that I hated them or judged them. I just didn't have an allure to me anymore. I wanted to be in church. I wanted to talk about the Bible. It wasn't my friends. I actually became a different person. And that's what happens when you find Christ. It's not that you hate everyone and judge everyone and now you're too good for anyone. That's not what it is at all. But we just have different desires. Now I desire the things of the eternal rather than the things of the temporal. And that's why it's important for you to be an evangelist, to tell people about Jesus. Yes, every one of us. As it says, we, we preach even to the dead, you know, because even though they may never accept, they need to hear the gospel and we are the person that God is going to use to let them hear the gospel. Let us continue. By the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You think the, the, the chapter's finished now, but it hasn't. Now, I remember these verses very clearly. And this is how I run the church. Many, many years ago, I was a life group leader and I invited the, the person who was looking after all the life groups to come to my life group. I expected that she was going to speak. 
And when I handed the meeting over to her, she just said, well, thank you, Mark, for having me tonight. It's good to be in this group. God bless you. It's really good that this group exists. And I'm like, I, I, I thought you were speaking. So right there, bad organisation, right? bad communication. And I was just left. She handed the meeting back to me. But luckily, I was someone who did my devotions on a regular basis. And just that morning, I had read these verses. And it's from these four verses, I believe I can run the whole church. And so I started to run my life group from these four verses. And in 2023, I'm still running according to these four verses. So you want to know how we run a merged church? Listen to this. This is how I run church. It says, so where it says the end of all things is at hand, Peter isn't saying that Jesus is about to come back because it's written 2,000 years ago. No, he's saying God's perfect plan for salvation of mankind has been completed. So let's get serious about what we're doing. This is not a game. Church is not a game. The kingdom is not a game. People are going to heaven or people are going to hell. They're going to have an eternity with God or they're going to have an eternity without God. And we are the church left on earth to get the message of the gospel out. So it's not a game. We've got to be serious about this. It says, be watchful and serious or watchful and serious in your prayers. We need to be serious about our prayers and let our prayers be watchful. Let our prayers come from what we're watching. We need to be watchful of what's happening in society. We need to be watchful of what's happening in our friends, in our family. We need to be watchful of what God is doing in us and what's happening inside of us. Watchful of what God is wanting to say. Watchful in the things of the kingdom that there's a seriousness to it. Don't live your Christian walk flippantly. Be serious and watchful in it. It's eternal. You know, when it comes to our church, I'm serious and I'm watchful. If you go out with me anywhere, at any place, whether it be social, whether it be whatever, I promise you it won't be long before I start speaking about the church because it's on my heart. I love this place. Above all things, verse 8, have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. Above all things, this is the most important thing above everything else. Above prayer, above, the, above, above coming to church, above, 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 above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This is what Peter's saying to us. Above everything, above your problems, above love people. And then it says a fervent love. So it's not just, I got this goosey feeling about you. No, it's fervent. It means there's an action to it. It's an action. And then it says love covers. Now, if you think about, you think about this. When it says love covers, it covers everything. It means that the things that you don't really like about each other, the faults, the issues, the past problems, we forgive because love covers a multitude of sins. Let me read to you uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We've all heard many times. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is how we're to act. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Imagine if church really was like that. If we really loved the way that we're commanded to love. If we really, above all things, loved fervently one another. We'd have to have 10 services every day. Right there, the world would be knocking the doors down coming to Jesus if that was what it actually was. So above all things, have fervent love for one another. That's how we're to act. It then goes on in verse 9 and says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Don't just do it because you're asked. Do it with a good attitude. Grumbling kills a church. Do what you're asked to do with love. You know, when I was running that life group, I had a piano player who was awesome. He was a fantastic piano player. I could turn up on the day, give him any songs, he would look at it, da 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 and have it done. But he just grumbled all the time. He just whinged and complained all the time. And I just got sick of it. His gift was fantastic, but his grumbling was horrible. And then I had these two young guys and they used to just do their devotions with their guitar and it would take me a whole lot of more work because I'd have to give them the songs like a, a week earlier and they'd practice them. But let me tell you, as soon as they hit that guitar, they didn't do it with the skill of the guy who played piano. They have all of those things, but they had a heart. And they didn't complain and they started to, and as the moment they just strummed that guitar, bang, all of a sudden, the presence of God would come. When we grumble, we're inviting God into what we're doing. When we, grump, when we, sorry, when we grumble, we're, 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 we're telling God to go away. When we're not grumbling, we're inviting him in. Be hospitable to one another. Then it goes on in verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each one of you has a gift and it's given to you for others. The gift that God has put in you is not for you. It's so you can serve and minister it to one another. You know, Jesus called the servant who buried his talent, Matthew 25, Wicked and lazy. That's very harsh words. But if you're not going to use your God-given talent somewhere in the body of Christ, you're burying your talent, which means someone else is missing out. And so I just say to you, don't let the words of Jesus about the wicked servant be said about you. You are stewards. Stewards indicates training. Your gift doesn't come to you fully formed. You've got to work that gift. You've got to practice in that gift. You've got to move in that gift. And as you do those things, that gift increases. Two talents becomes four. Four talents becomes eight. And so on and so on. So don't ever complain about whether someone's got a lot of talents or not. Because if you work your gift... All of a sudden, God's going to make sure you're going to have all the talents that you actually need to do what it is. You know, in the past, I've been criticized for my insistence 
and, and kind of I'm tough on this. It really annoys me when people don't come to team meetings. But I've got this insistence that a leader or volunteer comes at a merged church, comes to team meetings. Right? If you become a, a leader, a volunteer, I ask you and, and whoever's your leader is going to say, as part of we're serving in this area, whether it's working in a cafe, you know, doing whatever, I don't mind. I, I want you to be at team meetings. And now you know why. Because it's part of stewarding the gift that God has given you for others. As we train you in unity with the rest of the leaders and volunteers, you are stewarding your gift well and thereby increasing the level of gifting and therefore the level of ministry here in our whole church. So next time we have a team meeting, don't think, oh, great, another meeting because you show hospitality without grumbling. But don't just go like that. But rather come with an attitude that says, I'm going to steward my gift and make it better, which is better than for everyone. Also, your gift is the manifest grace of God. You're not special. God is. Your gift is undeserved favour of God. So never use your gift to make yourself over someone else. It's your gift that makes you special. It's your anointing. It's what God put in you. You're not special. God is special. So use your gift in humility. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. Not just anyone should speak. You know, sometimes someone will come to me at the front and they tell me they have a word for the church. If I look at them and I go, I don't, I don't know you from Adam, well, in a, in a thousand years, I'm not going to give them a microphone. No matter what they tell me, no matter what it is, I don't know them, so I don't let anyone speak. You know, even with people that I know, I ask them to tell me first. You'll see some, they'll come to the front and they'll, they'll speak to me. And, and if I feel it's right, but also if I feel it's the right time in the meeting, then I may say yes. Sometimes I say no. Sometimes I feel it's not the right time. Sometimes I feel the word they've got is a word for them. Sometimes I feel that they, they've come too often in recent times and so people are switching off by thinking in their head they shouldn't, but they do. Oh, not them again, right? Or I might confirm something that I'm preaching. So I say, thank you for that. And I'm gonna address that in my preaching. You know, they, they might get offended, but to be honest, the people that really come to me here, they're all mature people. And so they're not easily offended and they don't get offended. They actually understand. But I don't want just anyone to speak. I'm not going to just let anyone speak. That's crazy. You know, the guests and preachers I invite, they're people that I know. Or if I haven't met them personally, someone that I know and trust and someone who knows this church has recommended them to me. Because I'm not just going to let any Tom, Dick, or Harry, Mary, or Sally speak here. I hold this pulpit very dear. The people that speak from this pulpit, whether they be staff, whether they be guest speakers, whether they be me, right? We want to bring the Word of God. I want people who take it seriously, who want to speak as if God wants to speak to His people, You'll hear in my opening prayer almost every time, God, people didn't come to hear me. They came to hear you. So use me today. Speak through me today. 
That's the heart of someone who speaks. It's not about hearing me. It's about hearing what God has to say. That's the attitude to the pulpit I expect from anyone who preaches. And a senior pastor, you know, I've got many talented and anointed staff. They're gifted to do many things. And as I come to the end of my ministry days over the next few years, there'll be things that I'm going to delegate. But I can promise you, I will never, ever delegate who preaches from this pulpit. It's way too important because I want people who speak as if they're speaking the oracles of God. It's the word of God that brings faith and that's our role as ministers is to bring faith into people's lives. You know, I, I, I need people who minister the, out of the ability which God supplies, not what Google supplied, not what AI supplied, not some podcast that they heard or another sermon that they were inspired by. I want them to know. I want to know that they've heard from God, and they're bringing something from God. And I believe that you want me to be like that as well. And this is the reason why, in verse eleven, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the reason, my friends. We want to glorify God. We want to lift up Jesus. We don't want to lift up man. We don't want to lift up a man's gift. The glory belongs to God. Doesn't belong to me. Doesn't belong to the preacher. You know, when someone preaches, are they talking about God or are they talking about the person? Let it be about God because that's the goal of great preaching. You know, this verse also encourages me because I know that as I endeavour to do what these four verses tell me, I have dominion. Dominion is spiritual authority. As I walk in my God-given and God-gifted role, the enemy can't touch me. I have God's dominion. You know, against the devil on my own, as Mark Elmendorf, the devil can go like this, and I'm done, finished, obliterated. But I want to say, as I walk in my dominion, as the pastor of this church, as I walk in the dominion of Pastor Mark Elmendorf, 10,000 devils can't touch me because I'm walking in God's plan and I'm God's man and I have God's dominion on my life. I have dominion through Christ. 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know, we've all heard many testimonies and sermons on this voice. Rejoice in suffering. Find your gold in your suffering. Be molded in God by your suffering. Turn your suffering into joy, count it all joy, and so on. And it's all true. But this morning, I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on this. Do not think it strange, as though something strange happened to you. I actually find it strange that some people think that Christians should never suffer, that somehow suffering is wrong if you're a Christian. It's not fair for a Christian or it indicates some lack of faith in someone's life or lack in the power of God. It's not strange, especially in a hostile world that we are going to suffer. Christ suffered, the innocent one, the one in whom no sin was found, he suffered. So if he suffered, we are going to suffer. That is not strange. 
Don't be an immature Christian who has a little boy temper tantrum because something bad happened to you. We need to be better than that. Temper tantrum because things are tough because you're made to persevere and not a sign of Christian maturity. Perseverance is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And if you're a Christian long enough, trust me, at some stage, you're gonna have to show it. Don't think it's strange. Verse 14, if you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. It's kind of like a wide range there, right? Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matters. This is what we're to suffer for, our stand in God. Not for the things the world suffers for, but for the things of God. If you're sacked because you're lazy, because you're a busybody, because you're rebellious against your boss or a gossip, then you'll suffer. But as a Christian, that's not what you should be suffering for. But if you're sacked because people didn't understand your faith or you took a stand in a matter, that's completely different. You know, I remember being asked to falsify my mileage records for a company car because it was advantageous to the company tax-wise for me to do so. I just said I, I wouldn't do it. They got mad at me. They told me that everyone does it. They told me it wasn't bad to do in front of the government. The government kind of almost expected us to do it. Then they said, I'm going to have to, I'll lose my company car. And then they said, maybe then you even lose your job. But I just kept saying no. None of those things ever happened. I didn't lose my job. They didn't take away my car. But you know what did happen? I was trusted. And every time when I wrote on my sales report, I was never doubted. I was never questioned. It may have ticked them off in the short term, but in the long term, it worked for me. Suffer for being a Christian. Don't suffer for being an idiot. As Christians, we are going to suffer, but let us suffer for doing right. Verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely, scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? And I'm going to ask the band to come. If you could come, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. I want to hear some nice keys behind me. You know, I've heard this scripture used so many times as a warning. God's going to judge the church first. It's mostly used to batter the church. You know, some soul-killed prophets use it to berate preachers they don't like or, or some practice some church does as being from the devil. That there's sin in the church, that God is going to send to hell the wrongdoers, that, that Jesus is coming back and he's going to come back for a pure and white church and he's wiping sin from the church. But if that were true, then God's going to wipe us all out because there's no one left for Jesus to come for. The last time I checked, we're all still sinning. Maybe Nina's not, but everyone else, we've all sinned. Probably some of you sinned in the last hour, sitting here thinking about my message. We're all still sinners, but for the love of God and God's grace. We're forgiven once and for all sin. The sin we've done, the sin we're doing, and the sin we're gonna do. 
Thank God for Jesus that my name is written in the land's book of life because of what Jesus did, not because of what I did. So what does this mean? Judgment beginning with the house of God alludes to Ezekiel 9 verses 1 to 6 and Malachi 3 verses 1 to 4 where the Lord purifies his people. Judgment here is not punitive, however, but purifying and cleansing. The suffering of God's people purifies them. And then it goes on to say, if the people of God need purifying, then surely the judgment of those who do not obey the gospel will be even more severe. So let's get out and tell people the good news of the gospel. Peter reinforces this point by quoting Proverbs 11 verse 31 in verse 18. Scarcely saved doesn't mean the righteous through Christ just barely receive salvation. I just made it. No, it means the righteous are saved in the midst of their suffering, but their salvation is not easy or simple. And so it says, therefore, the reason is just said this, verse 19, therefore let us let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Nina, can you please come? I'm gonna close with this thought. By the way, you're looking really good today. I'm missing you. So yes, suffering is part of the Christian walk, but let the suffering come from standing from God by being purified and molded by God, not because of worldly issues. Do good even in your trials. If there's one common theme in the book of 1 Peter, it's that. Do good even in your trials. Entrust your soul. Trust God's love for you. He is a faithful God. Entrust yourself to Him. God bless you and continue praying for me here in Cambodia. Thank you for listening.